This reading's from Luke 14, verse 25 to 35. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and, hate, and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be, one, he cannot, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. He will not first sit down and estimate the cost. Wait. (laughs) He will not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it. For he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it. Everyone who sees it will ridicule him. Say saying, this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. He will not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him and 20,000. If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if it, lose, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? If it is fit neither for soil nor for human manure heap, it is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Good morning, everybody. Invitation and challenge are kind of like the right leg and the left leg of the gospel. Uh, Walking with Jesus needs both your legs and you need both invitation and challenge. And in the nature of things, invitation is much easier to hear than challenge for most people. But unless both legs are functional, no walking happens. And some cultures are kind of very high um, challenge um, for all groups or some groups. You know, think of the Victorian age. Little children should be seen and not heard. And some cultures like ours are very high on invitation and affirmation and you're marvellous and you're wonderful. But that's not always kind, is it? Because um, you can't live without challenge. And in cultures like that, often the challenge comes too late and it comes down like a ton of bricks when it does come without mercy and to follow Jesus we we need to hear both of the rhythms of the gospel both the invitation and the challenge and it's really interesting that around halfway through the first three Gospels, not halfway through in time, but halfway through in kind of space, um, around the time that Peter recognizes Jesus as the Messiah, the tone of Jesus' mission changes. It's most apparent in Mark's Gospel. It's there in all three. St- 
straight after the confession of Christ, three of the disciples go up the mountain with Jesus and he's transfigured before them. And Moses and Elijah appear representing the law and the prophets. And they talk to Jesus and they strengthen his heart. And Jesus comes down the mountain knowing that now is the time, as Luke puts it, to set his face towards Jerusalem because he's going there to die. And up till this point, Jesus worked very hard to keep his identity secret, except for those with eyes to see. You know, when he heals someone or raises Jairus' daughter from the dead, he typically says, don't tell anyone. You know, it's great what's happened. Go and give thanks to God. Don't tell everyone. And he keeps to the countryside, away from the cities, kind of dials it down, refuses to confront, you know, Herod and uses enigmatic language like the son of man, which could mean a whole range of things. And up to this point, the gospels are marked by exuberant joy and celebration and by amazement. Because no one like Jesus ever came before. The demons flee, the blind see, the good news of the kingdom is is proclaimed and it's for everybody and no one's ever had a leader like Jesus before. You know, they all have their own agendas, but, but Jesus is just different. And yes, of course, there are notes of sadness and conflict and challenge. And yes, Jesus is very direct. But the keynote is celebration and invitation. The kingdom of God is at hand and you can get on board. But after the transfiguration, when Jesus comes down the mountain, the tone changes. And it's much more about challenge as Jesus turns towards Jerusalem and towards the cross. And the message is as much come and die as it is come and live. There is a paradox and a mystery in following Jesus because if you lose your life, if you give it up for him, you find it. But if you hold on to it, then you lose it. And yet, in spite of this, in spite of the fact that Jesus is continually upping the bar, there are crowds following him and the kind of party atmosphere is still very much in evidence. And that's for many reasons, of course, but, but partly because of the messianic expectation. And although Jesus doesn't at all fit the picture of the political leader they wanted, nevertheless, there's something about him and more, and people can't help thinking maybe this is our Messiah. So Jesus' message and the parables and the stories get harder and harder to hear, more challenging. There's the rich fool. There's the narrow door that few find and the steep path that it leads to. There's driving out one demon only to find that seven worse ones come and take its place. 
There's Jesus' lament over Jerusalem. If only you had listened. His six woes to the Pharisees. And more and more and more. And the road ahead was going to be very hard for Jesus. And his followers will find it hard as well. And there is joy, and there is celebration, and there is invitation. In fact, there's some of the best invitations in the gospel. You know, to the thief on the cross who's lived all of his life as a murderer and a thief and just hears, today you will be with me in paradise. But the tone has changed. And in this passage that Sophie read for us, Jesus spells out that the invitation in the gospel is also an invitation to come and die. To surrender your life if you want to be a disciple. First off, this is really nice, this bit. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and the rest of his family, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, this is written with what scholars call rabbinic exaggeration or hyperbole. You say things in an extreme way to make a point. But nevertheless, that does not mean you can just let it wash over your head. The culture Jesus lived in was a strong group culture where family ties were very strong indeed the head of the extended family would have huge authority over you, whether you're a child or an adult, where you lived, what you did, who you married, what your beliefs should be. And that's the background to what seem like some quite strong anti-family statements in the gospel. There's quite a few of them. Jesus does not want you to hate your relatives. Just to be clear about that. He doesn't want you to hate your relatives. He wants you to love them. But if there is a conflict of loyalties, you have to be clear in your heart where your loyalty lies. Because if you do want to follow Jesus and your family doesn't, or maybe even worse, if they kind of do, but they're a bit half-hearted about it, there will be trouble. And uh, you will remember the man who came to Jesus and said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first bury my father. And he was not asking if he could go to his dad's funeral service, in which case the answer would have been, of course you can. What he meant was, well, Jesus, obviously you can't expect me to follow you while my dad is still alive because he doesn't like the idea. And when he's died, then I'll be head of the family and I can, you know, I, I won't run into trouble and I'll have inherited the farm and everything else. And Jesus is saying, no, let the spiritually dead look after each other. You come and follow me. Now, we live in a weak group context. And if you live in a family where the head of the family has authority over you as an adult or what you do, where you live, who you marry, then that's very unusual for our culture unless you come from a place, you know, some of our Iranian community do, um, where there's still a very strong 
a group culture, then you may experience some of that. And I just wonder how Jesus would have preached that to us, where actually we don't expect our parents to tell us what to do or where to live or who we marry. And most of our parents wouldn't dream of telling us any of those things. I wonder if for some of us, the message might be, you need to lay down your life for your family because we're just that bit too independent. I wonder if Jesus would follow not, focus not on our family's control, but on our family's values. Somebody said, your children may not share your opinions, but they will generally inherit your values. I wonder if Jesus might focus on some of the things in our culture that replace family authority. I wonder if he might say, unless you hate social media, you cannot be my disciple. That wouldn't be challenge for me at all. And then Jesus sharpens his point, because it's not just about you and your family. Unless you hate even your own life, you cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Now, when you carry a cross, you are on your way to die. If you want to follow Jesus, you cannot be preoccupied with your own success and well-being. If you identify yourself with me, Jesus is saying, you are putting your head on the chopping block. You are looping a noose round your own neck. Because the kickback that came against Jesus may come against you as well. And then there are those two stories rich people who build vanity projects and kings who are challenged in battle do not just rush ahead without reckoning up what they have. If you don't have enough money to build the tower or if your forces will be overwhelmed in battle, you don't even start. And if you did, you will be ridiculed. You would be like salt that has lost its flavor and good for absolutely nothing. And the challenge here is not primarily about money. Jesus gave plenty of those. But this is about the loyalty of the heart and being willing to identify with Jesus when it's tough to do so. And we know that in spite of the party atmosphere, when it came to it, nearly all the crowd were not willing to identify with Jesus when the push came. And when Jesus was before the high priests and Pilate, the crowd was either not there or worse, shouting crucify him. Now Jesus was executed because he was no longer keeping his messianic identity hidden. Pilate did not hand him over for execution because Jesus healed on the Sabbath or criticized the Sadducees and Pharisees. Pilate did not care about those things. Jesus said, 
my kingdom is not of this world, but he didn't deny that he had a kingdom and was a king. And that challenges me because generally, like Jesus, we will get on more or less fine if all we are going to do is be kind to people, feed the hungry and so on. But when we say there is a Messiah, a rescuer, who claims my loyalties and yours too, then not so much. Jesus wasn't at all aggressive or insulting towards Pilate, but he didn't hide who he was or what he thought. You would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. And the challenge here is, actually, where is your heart's loyalty? Because if you're not determined to follow Jesus, it would be better not to start. He requires our surrender, and surrender is usually painful for us, because our flesh fights and fights and fights against it. Now, it's also true that surrender is the path of life and joy and fulfillment and grace, and that the cost of not surrendering is far higher than the cost of surrendering. But it won't feel like that to us at the moment. And I, I don't know what the challenge of the Holy Spirit to you right now is about where your heart's loyalty actually lies but I want to offer one, um, and it's, um, it's around the area of cynicism. Now, cynicism is about standing back, being skeptical, unwilling to believe or commit, having reservations, looking with a jaundiced eye, thinking, yeah, whatever, maybe, perhaps. Always having reservations. Oscar Wilde famously said, a cynic is a man who knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. And just to be clear, on the one hand, doubt is not cynicism. Doubt wrestles. Doubt aches to believe. Doubt cries out to God. Doubt struggles to maintain faith. Doubt is when you wake up at 4 a.m. in the morning. And I, I don't suppose there's many followers of Jesus who haven't had a moment like that when you wake up at 4 in the morning and you suddenly wonder, is, is all of this true? Is any of it true? This, this job that I'm doing, you know, this, this life that I'm trying to live, is any of it actually true? And you have, oh my goodness, one of those moments. That's not cynicism. That's all over the Psalms where David and others cry out to God, where are you? Where are you? On the other end, realism isn't cynicism either. You know, wanting to ask hard questions, wanting to look under the surface, you know, wanting to see what's really there, that's not cynicism. That's good stewardship. Now, realism can blend into cynicism, just as doubt 
can blend into cynicism, but neither of those things are being cynical. And the difference between them is not how you say it. The difference is about what's in your heart. Now, I am very prone to cynicism. I enjoy cynicism and frequently has to call me out and uh, rebuke me for being cynical. If you're in my family, you know that. It's definitely a Peter weakness. It kind of protects yourself, doesn't it? It's quite fun just kind of step back and be a little bit cynical. And our culture loves cynicism. Our culture values unbelief over belief big time. Cynicism often comes out of bitterness or disappointment or a wound. The Pharisees and Sadducees were very cynical about Jesus. You can, I mean, you can almost hear them talking to each other. All those uneducated and unsophisticated people running after Jesus with stories of miracles and demons. You wouldn't expect anything more of them. But we know better. And the Sadducees and Pharisees said to Jesus, give us a sign, prove that you're the Messiah or we won't believe it. I mean, asking for a sign from a man who healed blind people, raised the dead, calmed a storm, walked on water, fed 5,000 families with five loaves and two fish, and you need a sign? And Jesus had no time for them because cynics have already made up their mind. And he said, you get no sign except the sign of Jonah. And of course, Jonah was three days in the fish, and there's, you know, the resurrection Sunday after, on the third day. So there's, there's that and the sign. But there's also the very pointed. Jonah preached a seven-word sermon and an entire city repented. They've seen the whole of Jesus' ministry over three years and their hearts are still too hard. Our whole culture is cynical and regards belief as questionable and naive and dangerous. Flee from a cynical heart because it brings death, not life. It can feel very adult and discerning. But to be cynical about Jesus and to hang back from following him and to give him everything you've got is death not life. But make sure your faith is in Jesus. We have a great church, we have great vision, we have great leaders, but put your trust in Jesus and not in that. And often cynicism comes from disappointment or pain that hasn't been dealt with. It's actually quite a good thing to talk about today when the students and young adults are away at their weekend because cynicism is often planted in the first half of life, but it really flourishes in the second half of life. And if you are recognizing, you know, like me, oh, that's it, that weed is growing in my heart, you may need to ask the Holy Spirit where it comes from 
and have that dealt with properly. Jesus made it so clear, if you follow me, you're putting your head on a chopping block, you're looping the noose around your own neck. But this is a therapy-obsessed age, and sometimes we don't hear that, sometimes because it's not preached. And it would be nice if we had to do the come and die, the surrender bit, just once. You know, you become a Christian, you do the evaluation, you count the cost, you say, I'm going to follow Jesus, and that's it, cut and shut. But unfortunately, it doesn't work like that. And it's the choice we have to make with each new day, whether we will surrender to Jesus or not, and whether we will have hearts that are expecting and looking out for what God will do today, or whether we have retreated into unbelief. So I want to say that if you have heard the challenge of the Holy Spirit in any of that, then note it just in your heart and mind. We're going to have just a couple of minutes to allow you to do that.